0: All right, come on, who wants to get into the Word a little bit? All right, so we're going to work on this week, we're going to work on Ezra and Nehemiah. They're the last two historical books at the end of the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah and a bunch of stuff and a little bit of a recap in the Old Testament, but uh, uh, this this sermon I've actually called Moralism Rides Again. Moralism Rides Again. I couldn't find a better title than that. I was trying. I was going to call it Oops, but no, but... Moralism rides again. I, I, I like Ezra, and I like Nehemiah, and I like their desire. I like their passion. I like their heart, but I hate the results, and uh, we're going to talk about that. So we just read Ezra chapter 1, 1 to 8. It says that you know Cyrus, he was moved by God, so God says the word of the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord, God stirred up world leaders. How many think that God could stir up world leaders today to fulfill the word of the Lord? What's wrong with the rest of you? How many won't put your hand up no matter what? <laughs> I see that hand. Thank you. I'm telling you, he did it before he's going to do it again. He, he literally, that, that word moved, it, moved it's, uh, it, it says later on, it says, God stirred up the spirits of those to go rebuild. So God stirred up world leaders and he stirred up his own people. This means that what God wanted to do in that day was something where he invaded the hearts of people and he stirred them up to do something he wanted to do in the world. And he moved world leaders, he moved people who weren't even believers, he moved people who weren't, he moved, he started to move, he started to press in. I mean, eternity started to press into the contours of time and say, I have something to do today. And I believe, I really believe, I believe, and I know I'm a blue sky guy, but I believe we're in one of those moments right now. I believe as a church, we're in one of those moments where things are about to shift. God is stirring us up. He's going to start moving your heart by force. You're going to wonder, where did all this energy come from? God himself going to visit you. He's going to visit world leaders. He's going to touch people's hearts. And they're going to be compelled to get his purpose done in the earth. Yeah. And that's what happened then, I tell you, but he's still that God. He roused him up. the word? The word to stir up is the word urr, See right there, U-W-R, to move by force, to rouse, to incite, to stir up. God in the hearts of kings. He in the hearts of his people. God rrr. Just do that. Have a mint first, but then do that to your neighbor. Gracious acts initiated by a loving God. It's God's work from beginning to end. God initiates it. He continues it, and he brings it to a glorious conclusion. It's a work of God. Jeremiah 31. When when I hear about those words, I think about words we've read. Jeremiah said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I'll make a new covenant. Say, new covenant. Couple weeks, we're going to step into the new covenant. New covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And for those people, that was a future hope. That was, that was a prophecy they were dreaming for, but they were still stuck in this old covenant that didn't, didn't deal with sin. It didn't deal with your broken, messed up inward life and conscience. It didn't deal with your broken heart. It didn't deal with the fact that I was born in iniquity. But there's going to come a day. And that's what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel, he said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you and then I'll fill you with my spirit, says the Lord. Just got to wake up the second row. They're all kind of looking grumpy at me. You know, I can see you people. I can't see the ones back there, but I can see you. So come with me. Come Thank you, Terry. Nine o'clock service, all worship. Hmm. All worship and announcements. Ezekiel. Ezra chapter nine. In Ezra chapter nine, it says, now for a brief moment, grace has been shown us to give us some reviving to set up the house of God for a brief moment. Here's Ezra. Ezra's saying, guys, we got to get with the program here. We got to embrace this minute. He said it's a brief moment. Now, in the in the Old old Testament language, Hebrew, it's a rega. He says we got a rega. A rega means a brief moment, a specific time, a limited time, a time with fixed boundaries. We are living in a fixed moment where grace is being released to do something powerful. It's a rega. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is a Greek version of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, it interprets the word rega as kairos. And kairos is, is the word, uh, kairos, is, there's kairos time, which is click, 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 click. Kronos, chron, sorry, "chronos" is like when is he done time, you know? Click, click, click. But kairos is, there's a specific moment. There's a moment, a fixed moment in time. And that's where it says, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. In the fullness of time, a virgin gave birth. In the fullness of time, Christ was crucified. There's specific moments of, of gracious purpose that are released. And what Ezra is saying is that this is a kairos moment. This is something from heaven. This is a God thing. And God has graciously given us power to do something big in our day. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss that God today for us as a church, as a people, and as the people of God, I believe globally we're going to see a significant shift leading up to 2020. And I believe we're going to declare crazy wild stuff. And what we've been hoping for, we're going to see come into manifestation. That's just me speaking prophetically for fun. All right. It's a brief moment. Now, there are three returns. We're reading Ezra and Nehemiah. There are three returns under three leaders, Robobo, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It was the same pattern happened under all three of them, and the same results happened under all three of them. There was this hopeful beginning of, oh, this is so wonderful, so good. And everybody was excited about it. And then there was opposition, and then there was a disappointing end because all the people fell into the same sins and stuff that got them sent into captivity in the first place. So even we, ah, we were all stirred up, all ready to go. And sure enough, it all went in this cycle of despair, which we've seen everywhere in the Old Testament, this cycle of getting all fleshly stirred up to serve God hard with all our hearts. And then a bit of opposition, the people fell into the same miserable, wretched life that got them sent away. Can I get an amen? I don't know why, but that was good. Amen. All right, so that's what happened in all of these. So you got these three things happen. So the first guy to go back was Zerubbabel. All right, in Nehemiah chapter 13, 25 and 31, this is the end. Now, in our Bibles, it separated Ezra and Nehemiah. In the original text, Ezra and Nehemiah were not divided into books. They were one book. But we've divided it into two books. But it was one historical talk about The people who came back out of captivity to restore the temple. But look at the end of Nehemiah. Here's Nehemiah. He he goes with such energy, resources, all the king's horses, all the king's men, king gives him resources. He has armies. He has all these people. They rebuild the walls and do all that. And then he, he goes back to the kingdom for a bit. And then he comes back for a visit. And sure enough, everybody is doing all the same stuff that got them all messed up. So Nehemiah, here's what he did. He said, so I contended with them. I cursed them. I struck some of them. And it's literally pulled out their hair as he pulled out their beards. Don't you want him as your pastor? You guys have had a bad week, Terry. Oh, I'm so fed up with you. <laughs> Amen. Pastoral Ministry 101. Yeah. You rotten sinners. Oh, what's wrong with you? Curse you. Curse you. And that's how it all ends. It ends with these beautiful, hopeful beginnings, and it all ends in a messed up, rotten state. Why? Because carnal, fleshly, try to do good will never, ever bring justification. I'm sorry that the church has fallen into the same type of gospel that was preached in Ezra and Nehemiah. If we would do better, God would bless us. If we would be better Christians, we would see a righteous nation. I go to prayer meetings and they all pray, righteousness exalts a nation. Oh, God, we're going to try to be more righteous. If we could only get righteous people in politics, oh, righteousness exalts a nation. So I'm like, excuse me, what does that mean? What? We're praying, Carl. Going, no, I just want to know who's righteousness, what righteousness. Like, if we get better, so if we down here just try a little bit harder, then, then maybe God will visit London. So I, is God upset with us? So I go, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And who determines when we've got enough righteousness and, and how righteous do we have to be? Because he said the righteousness that you're talking about in the Old Covenant is the righteousness of God himself. And we could never, ever achieve that righteousness. So what kind of righteousness do we need? We need the righteousness that comes from God. And did we get the righteousness that comes from God? Yes. Well, it's really stupid to cry out for what we already have. So because we don't think we have it, we fall into moralism. And we keep on, you know, Boy, I tell you, London's going to get judged. Terrible stuff in London. Do you see all the evil things happening in London? Oh, boy. God's going to judge them. Who says how evil do we get i mean how, how much wow where do you hit the god judge you meter did you not read in the bible it says the world was judged in christ did you not read that at the cross all sin and and everything that that separated us from god all sin was judged at the cross and yet we keep on thinking that god is looking down and and trying to figure out you know if you guys were a little bit better i'd bless you jesus did it all perfectly right I believe it by faith therefore I am not maybe not hoping to be but I am blessed but you see you get a whole bunch of moralistic lessons I don't know about you but I'm reading Ezra Nehemiah and I, I see them the leaders trying to say you people gotta be better and be careful don't be worse I'm gonna come smack you pull out your beards if you don't smart up because it means you your sin God's going to get us they were in a nasty situation nothing could help but all the stuff all the rules all the regulations were absolutely right but the power to get it done wasn't there because their hearts were busted were broken and they were completely separated from God by birth but thank God he had a birth solution let me say this you must be born again alright okay help us Lord moralism rides again All right, so uh, Genesis 3, verse 4 says, the serpent said that a woman, you will not surely die, for God knows. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the lie right from the pit of hell is that you're not like God. So the first lie was that you've got to do something to be like God, that if you eat the fruit of this, you can get the knowledge of good and evil and you can be like God. The problem is that's something that should be retained for God himself. And when man got that, we couldn't handle the knowledge of good and evil. Because now you've got a knowledge of good and evil. I've got a knowledge of good and evil. Kevin has a knowledge of good and evil. But what I think evil may not be that evil for Kevin. And what I think is good, Kevin goes, eh, "That's not really good. So then I've got a certain condition of what I think goodness looks like, and you've got one that it looks like, and then we all got one that it looks like, and the church down the road, they got a different standard. I mean, at the other church, thank God, nobody is on the worship team with a hat on on Sundays, praise God, because that's evil. All these places, we all got these standards of righteousness because we all ate from the tree and we're all trying to live our life out of the wrong place. And so we keep on telling people, you're good, you're bad. He'd be a terrible leader, he'd be a great leader. If we could only find a righteous man, we could have God bless our city. Well, good luck with that. Anyway, you might have to read between the lines to even understand the sermon today. See, when good and evil came in, man decided to self-govern. Now I get to say what's good and bad, all right? Instead of being led by the Spirit and let God always deal with that, and just living in the Spirit and living in a realm of absolute total freedom and loving each other unconditionally, we suddenly became our brother's keeper and started judging everything around us. And that's what religion does today all the time. And that's what happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. They kept on thinking, keeping the rules will keep the blessing of God in our lives. All right. So Satan's challenge to Adam and Eve was, don't you want to be godly? I mean, listen, don't you want to be godly? Who? Let me ask that question. All eyes closed, you know, heads bowed. Don't you want to be godly? I do. I want to be godly, Pastor. Be born again. Be born from above. Have a... nature shift and change, and you get a gift, a gift as a gift. You get the godliness, the holiness, and the righteousness of God deposited in you by faith. That's the only way it can happen. But see, if we preach moralism, we literally keep people messed up and and broken down, and we'll never see it if we keep on trying to do things with our flesh, because God will not glory in anybody's flesh. Okay, the fruit of was is self-introduced into mankind and the fruit was independence. We have the ability now to determine what is right or wrong, so we end up governing ourselves and we enter into that place of moralism. Say moralism. Dr. R. Albert Moore, R. Albert Moore, Moore. He's the president of the SBT Seminary. He wrote an article on why moralism is not the gospel. So I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes from that. I want you to read it. I put it up there so you can see it. Are you ready? Here it is. Look. The theological temptation of moralism is one many Christian and churches find it difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate both by direction and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world. The notes are online, you can read it all over again. The deadly danger of moralism has been a constant temptation of the church and is ever convenient substitute for the gospel. Clearly millions of our neighbors believe that moralism is our message. Nothing less than the boldest preaching of the gospel will suffice to correct that impression. Let me read that again. Clearly millions of people, millions of our neighbors believe that moralism is our message. You know, I go to church because it's made me a better person. You know, and, and you know what, you you got bad stuff going on in your life, but we're good people over here. I'm really good, you know. And you know, you're all bad, so you need Jesus. And you know, you can you can come to Jesus, it'll change all your behavior. I don't know, I've seen a lot of Christians. It's messed up behavior there. If behavior was the qualification, I don't think I'd make it. I wouldn't take five seconds, my best five seconds in life, to say, is this good enough, Lord? Am I worthy? I would never make it if he didn't condescend and come down and pick me up. The message isn't come and be self-improved. That's why I'm a little concerned. Drove by our sign the other day, and says, transforming lives to impact their world. I like transforming, but is it saying that you're screwed up and come here and we can change you? You're a mess, come to us and we'll make you better. Is that our message? Maybe right in our own mission statement we have a declaration of moralism. You're a messed up person, come hang out with us. You'll be awesome. And you know, you'll hear sermons all over the internet. Hey, here's a sermon today. This sermon is going to put you on top, brother. Hallelujah. Here's five steps to just step over top, overcome that. You're going to achieve. You're going to be awesome. You're going to be everything God made you to be. Here's five steps to be that awesome guy. Woo! It's all over the place and people flock to it because the knowledge of good and evil sells. How are you today? All right, give me another, oh, story, stay there. Read that again. Clearly, millions of our neighbors believe. Why do they believe that? Why do they believe that? Because the church has preached moralism for generations. And they believe that we are just saying, we're all goody-two-shoes, the world would be good if you'd all be like us. If only the whole world was Christian and behaved properly like us, we'd all have a good life. That's the same teaching as every other crazy religion moralism has been our message nothing less than listen how do we change that how are we going to change this nothing less than the boldest preaching of the gospel will suffice to correct this impression and to lead sinners to salvation in christ moralism isn't the gospel give me another slide hell will be highly populated with those who were right raised right the citizens of heaven will be those who by sheer grace and mercy of God are there solely because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Moralism is not the gospel. Okay, don't behave like that. We've got to show everybody at church we're a good family. Make sure you know your memory verse. Make sure everything you know. you. Hi, pastor. We're the, we're the righteous family. Look at us. We've got a whole bunch of performance Christianity and nobody feels safe to be real. I feel like crap. Oops, I better not say that. Hey, blessed, hallelujah, prosperous, good, feeling wonderful. (laughs) You know, I stand here, the only good thing about me is God loves me. He's poured his righteousness in me. Even Paul said, I don't boast about anything except God. And if anything's been done in my life, it's not me. It's the grace of God at work in me. And yet, we still got so much pride and humanity and self-righteousness and self-effort. We're afraid to say, I failed! Because I might be judged and condemned by all the moralists in my community. How are you today? Are you okay? I was going to, before I preached, I was going to put a big smiley face on the top of my sermon. Cheryl said, I need to smile more. Hell is filled with people who are trying hard. Hell is filled with people trying to say, I'm raised, right? I raised my kids, right? I raised everything, right? Look at me. I'm so awesome. Amen. Out smiling hurts. (laughs) Should do it more, Pastor. All right. I'm going to read you another quote from a a theologian that I, I really respect. You ready? Here it is. When you look beyond the moralisms and the apocalyptic visions and prophetic predictions and you look to see Jesus in the book of Daniel, it's not about prophetic gifts, mantles, and activations. It's not about good behavior and courageous moral living. It's not about prophetic predictions beyond the single fact. It points to Jesus. Zach sent me the sermon for last week before he we preached. I said, what do you think, Pastor? I said, I want to stay home. I want to hear that. Because I'm like, man, that, that's, that's clearly, we go to Daniel. We see people who lived right. We need a Daniel generation. We need people who will stand in the face of evil. Well, a lot of that did happen. We have a lot of people, but they, they didn't stand necessarily in the face of evil. They just knew that our God is God, yours isn't, and we don't care. And the whole message of Daniel is that God is the king. The ancient of days is the ruler of the universe, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And we miss that by trying to get moralistic lessons out of the book of Daniel, out of the book of Ezra, out of the book of Nehemiah, and we forget that the only thing that really changes lives is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get a better amen than that, please? All right, you're such a needy guy. Amen. All right, moralism. What is moralism? Moralism, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to the improvement of behavior. You know, you need, how, how many, how many, honestly, I mean, honestly, how many couldn't be a bit better? Except for Wayne, I know Wayne's awesome. But you know, if, if you keep on hearing a message you could be better, you could be better, puts you on this treadmill of performance all the time. And you know, the only way to actually get better is to receive the better from God, and then the better starts to manifest in your life. You see, before Jesus, I was a slave to sin. I couldn't help myself. After Jesus, I'm a slave to righteousness. Everybody knows what a slave to sin looks like, but did you know what a slave to righteousness looks like? I got out of bed, my foot hit the floor a river of right living is gushing through me. The Holy Spirit is pumping through my veins. I'm not cutting people off, screaming at people, flipping the bird, but the power of God is working in me, and it's like a river. I am a slave to doing godliness every day, and it's not because I'm trying. It's because the river of God is exploding inside of me. I can't even help myself. Glory here. Goodness here. Righteousness here. Righteousness there. Righteousness everywhere, because it's the power of God in my life. It's not the power of my flesh willing to be a better person. Moralism, it's got to go. Galatians two twenty one. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, Christ died in vain. If righteousness came through law keeping, Christ died in vain. So I'm not going to throw away the grace of God and say, you know what, God, I'm just going to try to be a good enough person that you can come for. He already came for you. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you could become the righteousness of God. That's it. There's no other plan. And you can't climb over the fence. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. There isn't anything else. And when we add behavior and we add, well, it's Jesus and pastor. He can't just say Jesus, pastor. Yes, I can. (laughs) Did you feel? All right. All right. Let's go, pastor. Move along, pastor. Galatians 2.16, knowing that man is not justified by works, is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, no one, not a single thing will be justified. But by faith, you can be made absolutely righteous. How many think that's good news? Three people. That's awesome. Matthew 5.20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's Jesus teaching, and he's teaching in the Beatitudes and the, the Sermon on the Mount, and how many know the Sermon on the Mount was not good gospel teaching? It was the law. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, it was the law on steroids. He said, you've heard it said, you know, you shouldn't murder. Well, I'm going to tell you something higher. I'm going to jack up the standard higher. Don't hate anybody. Well, I've never murdered anybody. I'm a pretty good person. Have you hated anybody? Well, hate? What do you mean hate? Define hate. <laughs> <laughs> you should not commit adultery. You heard that. Well, you should not lust every woman with your eyes. Oh, define that one for me, too. Is that like, hey, she's good looking or... Oh, I want to find out where she lives. Uh, But suddenly he's talking to a whole bunch of religious people, and he's saying, I'm not getting your attention. You all are trying to be made righteous through your own self-righteousness. What do I got to do? I got to show you that you're desperately needy. And he had to put the law on steroids. And he did it. And then he said to them, listen, because they all quit going to church because the Pharisees and the Sadducees made it really hard to serve God. See, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know where they came from? They came from Ezra and Nehemiah. They're all people who came back from captivity and said, we're not doing that again. We're not going into captivity again. I am not leaving Jerusalem again. We built the temple. We are never being removed from here again, all right? So we got the laws, right? We got the laws. We need to make more laws. So those laws, we went into captivity. So let's make some more. Okay, how long should skirts be? Well, skirts shouldn't go any higher than, you know, four inches below the knee. All right, we need a ruler at the guest center. So if anybody comes in, go, whoop, sorry, you're not allowed. Women can't wear pants. Men can't have long hair. Can't get a tattoo. Well, that's in the old covenant. So we got that one covered. But they literally added all kinds of moral laws to it. And they did it. They were a very moral, moral people. So when he said to all these people they are happy following Jesus, you're so much fun to be with. Well, your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees and Sagittaries. They're like, oh. Well, who can do that? That's the point. Nobody can. You need to be born again. You need a revolution on the inside of you. You need a new creation reality. And that's what the good news is all about. Ezra and Nehemiah. I thought we were in Ezra and Nehemiah. We are in Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, some observations about Ezra and Nehemiah. They went back. First thing they did was they built the altar. Now, listen, please, you need to be born again. You need to get this first. But for me, the first thing observation is you need to build the altar. I love Paul. Paul said, for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified, Jesus and him crucified. Here's Paul. Paul's Paul had a bad day preaching in Athens. He tried to be smart and reason with everybody and kind of, hey, I'm going to be cute and try to argue my way into understanding. Tell me, how many know what's written the letter to the church in Athens? Anybody read the letter to the church in Athens? Has anybody read that? No. You know why? There was no church in Athens. Why? Because Paul, instead of going with one revelation, the cross, Christ crucified, he went with the smarty pants revelation of, let me reason and argue with everybody and be smart. And when he went to Corinth right after Athens, it says he went in fear and trembling. He went thinking, God, did you leave me? I mean, there was no anointing. There was no power on my ministry. I mean, I got chased out of there. Oh, God, when he got to Corinth, he said, I came to you in fear and trembling, claiming to know nothing except Christ and Christ crucified. That's the altar. That's the altar that you got to start with. That's the first place, and you got to stay there, and you got to remain there, and you got to know that this is all about the finished work of the cross. That's what they did. They re- built the altar, and that's a good thing to do. The next thing they did is right here. They celebrated the foundations. How many of you have celebrated a foundation? I see a few hands. Why? Because foundations are important. We bought a new home recently, and you know what? I had an inspector come in, and you know what he did? He went right to the basement, and he inspected the foundation. said, this home is over 100 years old, you know? We better check out what they built it on. And he checked it out, and he said... It looks good. Oh, praise Jesus. I was liking the stained glass. I didn't know the foundation was important. You know, stained glass don't matter if you don't got the foundation right. You know, foundations, Acts chapter 2, the church began, continued steadfastly, devoted themselves to. What did they devote themselves to? They went to the golf tournament. They got in a small group. They went to Toronto to celebrate with the church in Toronto. They went to family day with the people today. They went to young adults and had a bonfire. They committed themselves steadfastly to doctrine, communion, prayer, fellowship, and giving. Those are foundations. But you know, you got to start with the first thing. When you get, don't do all of that stuff because you're trying to be, be a believer. Do all of that because you are a believer. Do all of that. Celebrate foundations because you are a child of God. If you're doing that to try to prove you're a child of God, good luck with that. ba 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 <laughs> number three number three we're coming to a, a rapid middle part we're coming to a rapid middle part say pastors in the middle okay overcome opposition Ezra four, four to five and 23 says then the people of the land discouraged them troubled them frustrated them say made them cease anyone who's awake please say made them cease amen praise the lord made them cease. That bothers me. They were moved by force to go rebuild this thing and do this. It was a God thing, right? Was it not? But then suddenly it says that these people made the work stop. The work, it says the work of the Lord stopped. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading along and it says the work of the Lord stopped, I have to stop and say, what's the deal with that? Doesn't mean God was in this. Why did it stop? Well, it stopped because of discouragement, trouble, and uh, frustration, and uh, by force, people came in and stopped. But nothing should be able to stop a move of God, should it? But if you read, it says there, read the next verse, the next verse. Give me another one. See what it says. The very next word in the very next verse is then. Say then. So the work had stopped. So then, right then, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jude and Jerusalem. And it was in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, who was over them. So I love that, don't you? If somehow even you have fallen into such discouragement that it doesn't look like the purpose of God is in manifestation, God will visit you and he'll get you back on track. Isn't that good? You know, so these prophets came. So Ezra and uh, Zechariah came. And you've read this, so I'm bringing this to your attention. Zechariah 3, 2, 8, 9 it says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. This is one of the prophecies to, to the priest, Joshua, who was leading the people. He said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He rebukes you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. He's going to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Now, in that, you see the prophecy of Christ. In that, you see the... Because, listen, was there one day that the sin of all mankind was dealt with? Yes, it's a picture of the cross, but he's saying, Joshua, listen, you've got purpose. Your purpose is tied to the eternal destiny of God Almighty. Listen, the Satan rebuke you. Whatever you're trying to do to hinder the work of God, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he says, Joshua, you are. And he reclosed them, and he set them, and he established them, and he brought them up, and he says, you live and walk around here and he encouraged him to get back on with the work. But there in it, we see all of that. All of that is tied to the purpose of God. All of it to bring us to that place where the branch, the servant of God would remove the sin of the world in a day. Can I get an amen? Zechariah 4, 6 and 7 says, not by might, not by power, but it's by my spirit. So you gotta get the altar right. It's Christ alone. Then get foundations in your life, but you're gonna have opposition. But even if there is opposition, believe that God's gonna visit you with a prophetic encounter. Zechariah 4, 6 and 7 not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstones with shouts of grace to it, grace to it, grace to it. Fantastic prophecy. He sees a vision of two living trees, olive trees. He sees running from those trees, uh, a, a funnel of oil running to those into a big bin, and then it's being dispersed, the oil from those trees. And you know, when you get a vision, a really good thing to do is what he did. What does it mean, Lord? And the Lord said, what I'm showing you is there there is a never-ending ceaseless supply of my power and my anointing to get this done. Don't let anything discourage you. Don't let anything hinder you. Don't let anything get in your way because the power of God doesn't come in dribs and drabs, but there's a constant living flow of the anointing. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's not because of your effort or your good deeds. It's because of the anointing and the power of God that shatters jokes and brings a breakthrough. And that never-ending flow I took you, pulled you out of the fire. I clothed you. I gave you the right to stand in my presence. And now there is a nonstop flow of my power in your life to do everything I've called you to do. And that's what the word of the Lord is to these people. What I love about it is grace to it. Grace to it. Grace to it. Because it's the grace of God that's going to make this happen. Say grace. Grace. That should be big time in everything you do because it's all about the grace of God. Let me give you, quickly, another five-point sermon. Not kidding. Speak grace. Speak grace. Little outline from this passage. Speak grace. If you speak grace, obstacles are removed. It says mountains become like a plain. Here's a good reason to speak grace to it. Mountains become a plain. If you lean into God's power... Get rid of all your self-righteousness and your efforts thinking you got anything to do with it. Speak grace to it, and that obstacle will be gone completely. Settle down. There's more. Second, victory is certain. The hand that begun it will complete it. What I started in your life, I'm going to fulfill it. What I started with you, nothing can get in the way of it. You see, what happened? The work of the Lord stopped. But it said, listen, nothing will ever stop what I've called you to do nothing you just speak grace to that obstacle it'll be gone and know this it is absolutely certain that I'm going to complete what I began in you third thing this is a prophetic word to you it's in Zechariah 4 but it's to you celebrate small things well I was praying for God to do something and he starts to move and it's I've seen so many people abort God's purpose just because well that's just little Sometimes it may be a small thing for a long, long time. What is it? A bamboo tree? You, you sow the seed, you water it. It's not till like 10 years it starts to sprout up. Does anybody remember that? that was, see, John knows. He told me that's right. You go check it out on your own. But if you sowed that, you put it in, for 10 years you're watering, you see nothing, you're like, how's oh, the deal with this? But you know, when it starts to grow, it'll grow like 30, it like, goes say 30 feet in just a matter of days. But you know what? In the 10 years that you saw nothing, you had to be faithful. Don't despise. Something that may look small. It's got a small beginning. Don't always think, well, I'm all that. I wanted more than this. More than this is guaranteed, and it's there. But you can't despise the day of small things. Two more. Two more. Holy Spirit's eager to do it. It says, these seven eyes, they rejoice. The Holy Spirit is ready to act. He's eager to act on his word. Fifth thing, unlimited, ceaseless supply of the anointing. It's a living. He didn't show you vessels with oil in it. He showed you trees. Why did he show you trees? Because trees are living. Trees are an eternal resource, and they will never stop giving the oil in your life. You have a ceaseless supply of anointing to always get. Oh, the anointing is dissipating. Oh, the anointing is lifting. No, it's not, because that's a ceaseless supply that will never stop flowing to your life to give God's power to you to do everything he's called you to do. Oh, settle down. Please. I know that. I just heard that God has given me a ceaseless, unlimited supply of his power to do his purpose in my life. What's what's for lunch? (laughs) Sometimes I think we just get used to hearing preaching. eh? Blah, 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 blah. Blah 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 blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah blah everybody. Blah, blah. How can we get familiar with there is a living, powerful flow of his power that is always accessible to me. It'll never leave. His purpose for me, he's guaranteed it. Nothing's going to stop it. He's committed to it. Blah, blah. Blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah. If I were a visitor, I'd be looking. At well, what he just said was pretty amazing, but I don't think they really agree. Or maybe they've heard it so many times before. There's like, yeah, the anointing again. Yeah, whatever. Hello. They celebrated Foundations. Look, the foundation is done. Whoa! Glory! Whoa, whoa, What are you excited about? The foundation! Whoa! We're having a prayer meeting. Whoa! <laughs> We're reading the Bible through the whole year. Yes! It's not by might, and it's not by power. It's not by sweating and screaming. It's not by rebuking and plucking out their beards and trying to draw, trying to suck an amen out of them. It's not by that. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. So Carl, settle down and take a pill. Yes, Lord, I trust you. God, I trust you. All right, we're moving right along because the clock keeper is no longer here. Ezra 3.12 The old man who saw the first temple wept aloud with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was... See, some people celebrated the foundations. The older people who saw the old temple, when they saw it, they wept. You know why they wept? Because they knew in history, when we set up the temple, the glory comes. We know that when, when, you know, the temple was built, it was glorious, it was beautiful, but they're celebrating this, but it says the old people wept. Because they, these guys were like, whoa! I mean, they, they were just coming back to Jerusalem. They were just fresh in it, but the older ones were like, there's no glory here. There's no glory here. Oh, God, where's the glory? There's no glory in rule-keeping. There's no glory in the law. God wants you to know there's no glory in it. But listen, let me. I'm finishing. I'm finishing. Look what it says. Go to, go to the next one. guy was one of the prophets who came at this day. guy was one of the prophets at this time. And he said, they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. He knew how the people felt. He knew what was going on. So the Lord spoke to those people who were weeping. And he says, they shall come to the desire of all nations. Why is that capitalized? Because it's prophetic about Jesus. He's not the desire of a few nations. You see, what they got mad about was you're intermarrying with other people. And God was like, who cares? Who cares? God says, It's not about that. I want all nations to come. And that's why in Malachi, God, they said, You people who've intermarried, you have to divorce them now. That's why Malachi prophesied, I hate divorce. Because the religious leaders today were saying, You got to divorce those people, cast them away. But Malachi said, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Don't separate these people. Don't you know that my heart is for all nations? He said to all nations, the glory of the Lord, that I will fill this this temple with my glory, says the Lord. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the glory of the former, says the Lord. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What's he saying? And it never did. That temple never came close to Solomon's temple. What's he saying? He's saying the temple, us. He's saying in the future there's a temple that I'm building living stones. I'm building a beautiful place. I'm putting people together and the glory that's going to be on the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the glory on that is going to surpass every other glory and I'm going to fill it with my glory and all the nations will come and my peace will fill the earth because the latter temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. (laughs) Praise God. I only got one more slide. Are you ready? Second Corinthians 3, 15 to 18. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. We've been stuck in the old covenant. We've been stuck in there. It's been hard. But it says there's a veil that lies on their hearts. But when we with an unveiled face, how's the veil taken away? The veil is taken away when the good news is preached. The veil is taken away when the gospel is preached. When the veil is taken away, we all with unveiled faces behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed from one realm of glory to another realm of glory just as the Spirit of the Lord. Listen, what realm of glory is he talking about? The old covenant had glory. He's talking in the context. He said Moses' face was shining with glory. The old covenant had glory, but it was fading. He said, but we now have the veil taken away. The law, Moses, the rules, the regulations, the moralism has been taken away. And those who have that taken away, they get transferred into a new kingdom and they get moved to another realm of glory. But you're not going from glory to glory to glory. You're going from old covenant glory to a new covenant glory that will never fade away. And that's the context. It's the absolute undeniable context of what Paul was talking about. He said, "The old, you know, because if I preach the law, you're going to feel glory. Why? Because the law has glory. You preach rules, it has glory. Why? Because the law is perfect. You can't do anything about it. But the law cannot justify you. And the law fades away. But there's a glory that we've been transferred into from one glory, Old Testament to New Testament glory we've been moved into an ever-increasing glory, the glory of God, a new covenant reality with God, which is by faith alone. Which is by faith alone. Which is by faith alone.